the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation, 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org, in partnership with Abbott. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. We have a special kind of flipping the heads on this type of broadcast because it's not going to be Dr. John and I really hosting per se. We have the daughter of a 90-year-old peripheral artery disease patient. Peripheral artery disease is the disease we talk a lot about here on the show. It's one of John and I's specialties, right? Um, And it's where you have those blocked arteries and mainly the legs um, that could restrict blood flow um, to the foot. If you end up with a wound on your foot, it may not heal because nutrients, especially oxygen, can't make it down to heal that wound. And that's what's really happening to Deb's mom. We're really excited. She's going to start out and she's going to share a little bit of the story. And then we have a vascular surgeon, Dr. Christopher Stout, who is here. We have an interventional radiologist, Dr. Dan Simon, who's going to be here in a moment. And of course, interventional cardiologist, Dr. John Phillips. So all of the main specialties that typically treat PAD are are here, and they're going to allow Dee to ask them any questions she might have. So it's really going to be a demonstration of how do you advocate for yourself and how do you advocate for the ones you love? What do you think, John? I, I number one, ha- you know, it's, it's it's good to see your face. For those that are watching and those that are going to be listening, Kim got a haircut and her hair looks a little shorter. It's blonde. We all love it. And she's she's, the first she's, time got, years. she's got vintage uh, grandma's blouse. Angora sweater. <laughs> yep, on you know so. Um, looking great. I am actually on location in Cambridge, Ohio. I'm working at our hospital there helping cover because we're a little short staffed. So, yeah, I mean, normally you and I, we wax poetically and we have guests on that kind of, you know, share their topics with us. But this will be interesting having Dee's perspective because she's obviously, you know, it's her mom. But I get the sense that Dee's also part of the care. She's a caregiver to some degree. And so and and clearly involved in making they're helping her mom make the right decision. So these are always tough cases when we've got patients who are of of the extreme age. I mean, 90 is, you know, she's not a spring chicken. And as they say, there's 90 rings, you know, on the tree trunk there. So we have to be careful. But also it sounds like mom's pretty active. And so I'm looking forward to having the conversation. We have Dr. Stout uh, who's going to be joining us or who is joining us. So we're, we're going to have a lot of perspectives Hopefully we'll have some fun. It is the week before Christmas, so I'm in a good mood. So let's let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> With all the bright lights, like how could you not be in a good mood? 
But it's it's also one of those, I think it's one of the busiest weeks when it comes to healthcare systems because everyone's rushing to get out for the holidays and patients are trying to get in fast before the holidays. And it always seems to be that as you approach Christmas um, or Hanukkah, like suddenly everyone emerges and they emerge in the emergency rooms. And you try to prevent that by just stacking your clinics all week long with as many patients as you can get in to make sure that that there's no one suffering on on the during the holidays when yeah, there are I mean, fewer doctors exactly because you know, you've got family members that are coming into town that haven't seen you know mom or dad or grandma and grandpa for a while and then they look at them and say geez you don't look too good and so hey let's yeah. take a let's go to the hospital i actually this morning did a little interview for our local uh, the Columbus TV uh, TV uh, station because they wanted to know about kind of like what events can happen from a cardiovascular standpoint during the holidays and we we did talk a little bit about travel and the development of DVT or PE for prolonged um, er- periods of immobility. We also kind of talked about we often sometimes see an uptick in cardiovascular events, heart attacks in the colder weather with snow and shoveling and all the. Yeah vasodilatation, constriction, things like that. So there's a lot going on. Plus, you know, you've got a shop for dad and family and I've got to get my Christmas shopping into. So yeah, busy, busy week. you know, we might even be having my dad. I've had to advocate for, for my dad urgently before the holidays. We are now probably going to end up doing an, uh, a full angiogram on my dad's heart uh, because he's just, de- you know, declining and fast when it comes mm. to his shortness of breath as he's walking and everyone brushed it off before. And yes, he had blood clots. Now those are clear, but what if they are still in his heart? They found him in the lungs. Why wouldn't they potentially be in his heart as well? And maybe they didn't melt or I, they don't melt uh, no. with the eloquist. Um, sure. They didn't may not have absorbed, um, you know, it, with the, the medicine treatment. So now they're worried that maybe there's some in his stents and his right coronary. So we might have to get that. But that took a lot of advocating this week to push for that, you know, before the holidays. I mean, the last thing I want is, you know, heart attacks. What the number one day out of the year for that is Christmas, um, where the most heart attacks actually occur. So is that, tr- is that true? I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, I actually I had just read it that that was the then it's the number one time of year for for people to have a heart attack. So and the guy that has the biggest risk is Santa and he usually does pretty well. I mean, he's a jolly old guy. He's eating cookies and milk all the time. So we, we got to figure out what stat he's on. <laughs> I know. Seriously. Well, I think it's about time we get things started right. and uh, let's kick off with a moment of inspiration. Dr. John Phillips, spectacular vascular moment of inspiration. <laughs> so I guess keeping with the holiday spirit, I was looking for some kind of interesting Christmas quotes. There's a lot out there about family and and religion and things of that nature. But I found one on from Bob Hope, right? Bob, Bob Hope did the Christmas special, I think, for a really long time. And I like this one. And so he's quoted as saying, my idea of Christmas, whether old fashioned or modern, is a very simple one, just loving others. And he wow. says, come to think of it, why don't. Why do we have to wait for Christmas to do that? <laughs> so I like that quote. You know, be kind of each other. Uh, there's, I, I would imagine, Kim, when you think about Christmas moments with your mom, um, 
they were pretty simple ones, right? Probably, yeah. you know, around the whatever, but not complex, very simple, just being around family and loved ones. So it's important to remember that during this. Holiday. It is. That was that was the perfect quote. And speaking of loving others, we have D with us. D, just loving on your mom and so much pressure you have fighting and advocating for her life and her limb, right? Yes, yes. Um yeah, uh, I know you know a little bit about the story, and I don't know what how much you shared with the with her with the rest of it. But you know, she has more complicated medical issues. She has congestive heart failure and um, coronary artery disease as well. Um, she's and so she has um, you know those additional medical issues. And so it was kind of like trying to find the best person to to um, you know to help her with her situation. Um, given all her medical issues and whatnot. So, um, and, you know, one of the things we had trouble finding is, you know, finding like somebody that actually specializes in the below the knee and her feet and the feet area and um, trying to, to figure out like who's the best um, person to be able to, um, you know, also given her medical issues, who would be the best to, um, you know, hand, you know, handle her. Um, so, I was wondering, one of the things I was wondering is, you know, given each of everybody's subspecialties uh, or specialties, um, like, is there any particular, like, training that you'd receive in the, like, below the knee and the feet that, um, you know, like, are there any specific fellowships or, you know, after fellowship training that specializes in your respective fields? You know, I'll take that and then I'll let um, the rest of the physicians comment. For me, no. I mean, as an interventional cardiologist, we play in small arteries in the heart. Uh, the calibers are pretty similar. They're a lot shorter in the heart, but similar <laughs> diameter uh, of those in the tibial vessels. Um, and so those are the vessels that are below the knee and potentially, you know, going into the foot. Uh, I did do some training out in Italy to learn from some of the physicians out there who have really kind of taken the whole below the knee, at least in my opinion, the below the knee um, intervention and into the foot intervention to the next level. So I was thankful enough to to get some of the, learn some of their tricks uh, and tips and, and get their insight. But, um, you know, really, whether you're a vascular surgeon, interventional radiologist, interventional cardiologist, in my opinion, you have to, if you're going to treat people with peripheral arterial disease, you have to be able to treat people that have critical limb ischemia and the vast majority of those have blockages below the, the knee. And so you have to be able to kind of work in that space and, and help people get better blood flow into the foot. And coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to hear from an interventional radiologist, Dr. Dan Simon, and a vascular surgeon, Dr. Christopher Stout. They're going to weigh in in just a moment. So we'll be back. Don't go away. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its 
advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 atherectomy system, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. This is an interesting show. The coin has kind of been flipped. Instead of Kim and myself asking questions, we have our guests asking questions of us as well as our, our guest physicians. Um, so so what I'm going to do right now is I, I kind of gave my little take, D, on uh, – my thoughts about uh, working below the knee. Dr. Simon has joined us as well as Dr. Stout. Dr. Simon, pleasure uh, to to have you on the show. Um, Give us a little bit of your insight uh, with respect to Dee's question, please. So your question is a good one, and it could apply to anywhere in the country, which is, so who's the right individual or what's the right training or what's the right title for someone who can do sort of below the knee work? And the fact is, like any of these people can do it because the title is, in fact, not going to help you um, to the granular level of knowledge that you're looking, which is so what is the experience level um, to work in these small tibial arteries? And certainly um, cardiologists are spectacular. You know, they're all great, you know, uh, platforms, whether it's vascular surgery, interventional radiology, uh, uh, interventional cardiology. These are all potentially very well-trained, skilled individuals and so I don't think any training is necessarily going to eclipse any other by title. It's really where does the operator um, choose to emphasize and what's their skill level and how comfortable they are. Um, if I were to going to say, hmm, how do you ferret out in a particular geography who's the right individual to, to, to work? Um, I had this question posed to me uh, in New York, kind of where I live, which was, you know, my dad needs a TAVR procedure. Where should it be done? Uh, you know, Cornell, Columbia, NYU, Sinai, Montefiore, which hospital? And so um, if you said, OK, you know, and, and to answer that question, I said, you know, who I'm going to call. I'm going to call the companies that manufacture the TAVR devices and say, OK, Boston Scientific. <laughs> OK, Edwards, who are the reps? And then say, Tell me, tell me about the teams in these places and, and who's good and, and where would you go, that sort of thing. And so whatever geography you live in, you could say, okay, the operators who are going to be doing tibial work, which is what we're talking about here, you could say, let me talk to the laser people. Let me talk to the CSI people. Let me talk to the balloon reps. Let me talk to the – you know, stenting in that area is a little um, more advanced and, and potentially yes or no, but certainly everyone's going to be doing an angioplasty. And so – if you wanted to kind of understand who is super comfortable in that space, who is doing it on a regular basis, and you know, I think from seeing some of the the prequel to this show, I think this is Sacramento market. I don't know, um, even though I, I trained in California uh, twice uh, in my career in LA and and San Francisco, but I would say one one way to get knowledge 
in the operators who are there and who who are very comfortable would be to speak to the reps, get a hold of the drug company. I mean, get a hold of uh, the device people in that area and just ask questions. It's not that that's the final answer, but you're essentially doing some detective work. Um, the other thing I would give a shout out for in this area, you know, again, I don't have the full history and all that stuff on this patient. Um, these tibial artery disease patients, they're often very sick. I think, uh, the, the CHF was in there. Wouldn't shock me if there's diabetes, COPD, renal insufficiency, you yeah, know, there's chronic, chronic venous right, there's, there's chronic, quite a, chronic kidney. Yeah. There, there's quite a long list here. And so the other thing that, that we do a lot of, and I'm not saying um, it, it's it's a, a complete, you know, it's a deal breaker. We do an enormous amount of carbon dioxide imaging. Okay, if you're going to play around in tibial vessels, if you're going to make this your business, your space, your area of expertise, you better be highly comfortable as an operator imaging with one ml, two ml, five mls of contrast. That's the whole case. That's the complete tolerance. You get very few shots on goal. And if your your operator cannot do this case with you know less than ten or twenty mLs of contrast, um, then then you know perhaps um, you know that needs to be at least a consideration in in terms of selection because the 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 there's always there's always choices to be made there's always sacrifices there's always a downside um, we do not want to put anyone in a position where. Uh, dialysis is the outcome for an attempting for a, an attempt to save a limb. Um, mm-hmm. There are implications on both sides of that, but certainly t- today in 2023, soon to be 2024, there are ways to accentuate uh, imaging, uh, in particular carbon dioxide imaging. Um, and so, if they are not doing carbon dioxide imaging, if that's not something that they've done in the thousands, as far as I'm concerned, thousands, then um, I would look elsewhere. It's just me, East Coast, um, uh, Jersey. But but I would say that is a you, those kidneys uh, should not be put into jeopardy uh, to answer particular questions anyway. Mm-hmm. So you're saying like 20, 20 mLs would be the maximum to use for contrast dye? You know, I don't I don't. It, it, unfortunately, it's it's not a there's a threshold upon which you cross, you know, uh, where it's unacceptable. Um, but but we've done, you, you know, a big part of our practice. My practice is we're seeing patients with creatinines of one point nine two, two and a half, three, three and a half. And they're not on dialysis, nor do they want to be on dialysis, nor do we want to be the nor do we want to be the culprit that puts them onto dialysis inadvertently, inadvertently. Uh, and so we, we've, you know, and again, we do, a, we do a lot of, you know, a, a fixation on this uh, in terms of imaging. Um, here's my analogy. Once upon a time, if you wanted to take pictures and good pictures, you had to have like that camera and then buy the film with the F-stop and the shutter speed. And you had to know all that stuff. Right. Like I'm shooting in dark and what's the all that business that makes up photography. Nobody does that anymore. We have an iPhone. We hope we take it out. Now everyone's a photographer and a pretty good photographer at that. But when it comes to medical imaging, when it comes to doing these angiograms, 
this equipment we use, it's fantastic. It's really amazing, uh, uh, the technology here. But every now and then, we, the operator, vascular surgeon, cardiologist, interventional radiologist, maybe an interventional neuroradiologist, maybe an interventional nephrologist, the, the list keeps growing as to who's doing what and using what equipment. But at some point, you're taking pictures, and the, the equipment is doing most of the heavy lifting. And all that's true up until such time as someone says, well, you know, the, cre- the creatinine is close to three, and we've got to really limit, it, our, limit the dose of contrast. And so now you enter the world of carbon dioxide imaging. Uh, some We used to use gadolinium to get around this problem. That's an MR contrast agent. But even that's now verboten because there's an issue with the kidney's excretion of the, of the gadolinium or the gadolinium-based contrast. But that metal is now a problem we've come to recognize. So the gadolinium or the MRI contrast agents, which we were borrowing to use in, in angiography, we don't do that anymore. You're in the world of carbon dioxide imaging. That's going to do most of the work. But that's kind of tricky and annoying, and you're back in the 1960s with cameras. you got to figure out what's my angle here. How am I taking this picture? Can I adjust the brightness and contrast? The only way to learn this is to do an enormous amount of it. And so the people who've done it over and over and over again are the people who are like, yeah, we can do it. Um, and we can get away with five, 10 mLs of contrast to kind of do this case. Um, the other thing is setting goals. You know, when a patient with normal kidney function, you might say, listen, I'm going to fix everything on this screen. In a patient that has a creatinine of 1.9 or 2 or 3, you might say, there's a multitude of problems in these tibial vessels. We're going to pick one and fix it. And that's our goal. That's it. We're fixing this one tibial because we're going to come back two days later uh, or a week later after these three mLs of Visipake, of, which is a contrast agent, have passed through this patient. And we're going to repeat their creatinine to make sure we didn't do any damage. We're going to bring them back. We're going to fix that other tibial. What we're not going to do, what we're not going to do is be overly ambitious and greedy and try to fix everything on this visit and expose this patient to 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 mLs of contrast. We're, we're going to come back and fight another day. That's Dan, what we're going to do. Uh, great, great uh, um, conversation there. We've got to go to break. Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking. Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me. Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age. Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal. Yeah, it turns out we all have peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg, but that does not have to happen to you. No, it does not because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough. PAD. 
peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are the way to my heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients. And we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our LegSaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your life and limb could depend on it. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, having a great conversation here today uh, with Dee regarding her mom who has critical limb ischemia. So we were before we went to break, um, Dr. Simon was kind of speaking about uh, some of the perils of performing angiography with contrast and some of the alternative methods that we have to visualize the arteries. Dee, you had a question regarding that still, or was well, there something well, else? Well, actually, well, I didn't know he was going to jump. I'm sorry he has to go. It was really enlightening. And thank you for sharing your insight, uh, Dr. Simon. Um, I just, well, one of the things I was wondering, my, my mom's particular case, she's also concerned about going doing uh, doing it under general. And I was wondering, like, how long the procedure lasts, um, you know, in her, particular, in her particular case, like, how long would it last? If there would be a chance of her going under general, and if she would have to do that, is there a way that, she could specify before the procedure, like if she if the, if it required that, that she that you could just not not do the operation and not do the procedure. Um, is that something that's doable? And then also, if um, she my mom has really restless leg, like they jump. I don't know if it's a technical definition of restless leg, but she has like maybe some people have said myoclonus possibly, but I'm not sure if it's truly what it is. But she has spasms, you know, and at night mostly. Um, she just had a heart cath last July, and she just did Mac. You know, she just did um, Twilight for that. And she was fine. You know, when they, when they did the pacemaker, she also had a heart cath last April and she was fine. You know, she just had Versed and propopol, you know, at the time. So she was fine for that, but I know they're in the legs and obviously sure. that's a little bit more or whatever. And it, is it going to be a longer procedure? Like how long would the procedure be? Is that possible to um, do that? And then the other thing I wanted to ask is from the office based lab with my mom's medical conditions, would it be better for her to stay at place where a hospital that she would stay overnight to be monitored because she does have CHF. She does have hundred percent blocked of her LED and another one, you know what I mean? And she there is a, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll put my Ooh, two cents yeah. in and then uh, let uh, Dan comment on it. So the, the use of general anesthesia, you know, we don't, I, you know, I would say 99 of a hundred cases I use just twilight uh, for most, for most folks, that's enough. There's not a lot of pain involved. Really the rate limiting step, as you mentioned with the second part of your question is the patient's ability to be still with the heart catheterization, the legs can move. Doesn't matter because the chest and torso is not moving, but if the patient can't keep their legs still, if they're fidgeting, well, we're taking images, the images get thrown off, they're blurry, we can't see. And so if, if, if I'm seeing a patient in the office and they're telling me I have a hard time keeping my legs still, and I'm moving around. It's not, and again, it's it, they're not trying to do that. They can't control it. Then for me, we need some type of sedation to keep keep them kind of from moving. Uh, obviously, at 90 years old with other comorbidities, you have to be careful about general anesthesia. But possibly having an anesthesiologist there that can kind of help with a more aggressive um, anesthetic um, would would be my recommendation. I don't have an office based lab, but uh, clearly, you know, mom's pretty old and has some comorbidities. And so potentially 
maybe maybe being in a place if something you know where she would be needed to be monitored overnight might be a benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, uh, John is very correct in saying, man, there's a lot to unpack in your question, and it's a great <laughs> question. No, it's a great question. Um, so I I. I I work in several office-based labs, you know, um, and so in some we have anesthesia and some we don't. Um, and this question of, of you know, some of these things are uh, uh, largely in a crazy way. Just step back. Medicine. Medicine is the judicious practice of common sense. That's really what it is. Okay. Evidence-based, judicious, common sense. And so someone's going to move their legs, and that is actually going to degrade our imaging. And it's a real problem. And it's a real problem. And we face it all the time. And so as crazy as may seem, um, and, and we balance this, you know, wh- why do we even care about anesthesia? What's what's the big deal? Why not just put everyone under anesthesia? It's because itself, the action of anesthesia carries particular risks. It's, again, there's there's no free lunch. And so we we try not to use anesthesia and we use twilight and twilight kind of has different definitions and and uh i'll often introduce uh uh, the team who's handling anesthesia as you know this is our bartender for the day here Uh, and she knows how to mix these drinks and you'll be happy is often what i will say Uh, but sometimes the best is nothing we get going to give the patient nothing um there's two parts to this the first part is the taking of the pictures just getting building this map of like we 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 understand there's a problem but in fact we don't really know the granular nature of what is blocked open not blocked treatable not treatable we've really got to take pictures and the better the picture the you know the more helpful and the less movement all the better we actually have these velcro straps which we use to really immobilize the legs and so we would much rather put several of those on and use nothing and just work through the restless leg syndrome or the movement. Uh, and so very small doses of fentanyl versed, um, might, uh, we used to actually use a drug called droperidol. It's an anti-nausea drug, but in fact, um, it is a, in the Haldol family and it kind of actually just mellowed people out. Anyway, what, what the goal is, little movement, take pictures, and then work off those. Um, you know, it's hard to say she, just what you're telling me, where your mom should have it done, because, in fact, this is, again, such a regional focused person, personal preference. Like one doctor saying, I can't do this case, you know, is is another person saying, we do 50 of these. This is no big deal. No big deal at all. Okay, Um, and so it really is, you know, trying to find ferret out from an operator, you know, what your comfort level is. I think John's point is, you know, you sit with a patient beforehand and you kind of get some sense of just how how possible or not possible. But even that, um, you know, Norman Schwartz, Norman Schwartzkopf said no battle plan has ever survived an encounter with the enemy. And so you can, of course, come up with. From your meeting and your 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 uh, physical exam and everything, you got a sense of okay how this is going to go. Except on the day you do the test, everything could go out the window. And in fact, we've seen patients where the first angio was was horrible, absolutely horrible. And the next time they come, because we're we're not trying to fix everything at one time, it's fantastic. They're great. It's just an absolute pleasure. And the reverse is also true. And the reverse is also true, where they're spectacular on the first visit 
and a week or two weeks later, it's a completely different person who's on that table, especially in a 90-year-old with CHF who's going to be in a slightly unfamiliar environment. You know, all bets are off necessarily. I'm, I used to be super, super anesthesia until I found myself working at a hospital where I was the guy who ran the stroke team. And often we would go up, you know, I would call anesthesia and say, we have an active stroke. And they'll say, we'll be there in an hour. And I would often want to say, this train is leaving the station in the next five minutes. And you're either on it or not. I could care less. You want to show up? Fine. But we are not delaying, you know, treating a stroke because you can't pull someone from a knee replacement or whatever. And so um, we've, you know, we've learned to work around anesthesia, but that's us. That's us and in particular circumstances. And so it's very hard to give like a broad answer to your question, which is really just, a, again, it's sort of a common sense question. Like my mom's 90. Is she spending the night? I, in tip, typically, we don't admit patients. We don't have anesthesia. And we're able to do this um, all outpatient. Typically, right. it doesn't mean your right. mom's going to fall in that box. Dr. Dan Simon out of New Jersey, interventional radiologist. We appreciate you. We're going to come back with Heart of Innovation and vascular surgeon, Dr. Christopher Stout. So stay with us. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. We are with Dee. She is advocating for a 90-year-old mom. We are trying to get multiple perspectives from the practices that mainly treat peripheral artery disease, those blocked arteries, and mainly the leg, the legs. Um, her mom has advanced stage, which is critical limb ischemia is what it's known as. And so she's debating, well, do I have a procedure to open the arteries? What doctor do I go with? Is it practice specific? Should I be uh, having her do the procedure in the hospital or an office-based lab? Like, oh my gosh, so much pressure. Um, Before the break, we were talking to an interventional radiologist, also Dr. John Phillips, an interventional cardiologist weighed in. Um, But we also have Dr. Christopher Stout, who is a vascular surgeon. So I'm going to let... Dr. Stout, jump in here and uh, explain the practice of vascular surgery and the value in going to this practice as well. Dr. Stout. Very good. Very good. Thanks for uh, having me on here. Um, A vascular surgeon, we're trained in uh, how to do the angiograms and revascularize the lower extremities in addition to providing, uh, we're we're trained in how to do the bypasses if if the angiogram fails. And I'm a firm believer that if it looks like it's able to be done with an angiogram, it's much less invasive, much less risky than a surgical bypass, which does require general anesthesia, does take multiple hours, does require you know, a week in the hospital and it takes months to recuperate from it. So um, getting getting back to some of your questions on the, the risks and, you know, should this be done? We generally will evaluate a patient, um, whether it's Dr. Simon or Dr. Phillips or I, we'll evaluate the patient before we do any procedures. And, and that's part of the defining their anesthetic risk and um, also their airway. And we look at, you know, what is their heart failure? Okay, is their heart failure? Are their legs swollen today? Are they short of breath? No, they're okay. Um, you know, we know that there's some coronary or some heart disease in there. And no matter 
which way you look at it, an angiogram still carries a small risk of developing a heart attack just because of the stress of the procedure. It's very, very small compared to surgery, definitely, but there is that risk. So um, I operate in um, um, OBLs in addition to hospital spaces, so I have a pretty good perspective on that. And I much prefer to do cases in my OBL first, even on the 90-year-old with CHF and LAD lesion, um, as long as they look good on my pre-anesthetic evaluation that day. And like Dr. Simon said, I've evolved to not using much anesthesia. Um, and in the patients that have a lot of leg movement and things like that, I find that the less anesthesia you give, they can focus a little bit more. The patient can focus on, I'm going to try and keep my legs still. But when the patient is heavily sedated, then then there's a little less inhibition and they, they don't know and their legs seem to move quite a bit more. Um, one of the good medications I like is uh, ketamine, uh, which you got to be careful with ketamine and um, patients with high blood pressure, etc. So again, it's, it's one of the things, you know, it's like the bartender. The bartender is going to mix a drink and it may be, you know, this, this medication or that medication or this combo. Uh, so all very good information for you here to um, be able to get you some information. Um, um, now, CO2, CO2 is a definite must, especially in anybody with chronic renal problems, uh, because you don't want to push somebody onto dialysis or even push them up into where they're chronically renal insufficient. So then you bar them from other tests in the future. Uh, so I think CO2 is great. And, you know, one of the questions asked your doctor, do you use CO2? Yes. Okay. When you do use contrast to see my lower extremity arteries below the knee or in the foot, if I'm trying to do, you know, revast the foot, ask them, can you use a 3cc syringe? Because um, when you use a smaller syringe like that, you're less apt to push it all in there as a, you know, operating physician, especially if the legs are moving and you're starting to get a little bit frustrated. Um, using those smaller syringes will limit your contrast usage significantly. You can do a case with just a few milliliters of the contrast and get a great result. Uh, so I agree with what everybody is saying so far. And I think that, you know, find a doctor that will give you minimal anesthesia and it's your preference and their evaluation of whether it's an OBL or a hospital. But think about what what exactly um, what exactly is is going on um, with the patient and that will help you decide that. And, you know, the interventionalist, you've got to really be careful because you're going to find really good vascular surgeons that can fix below the knee stuff. You're going to find guys that don't even take pictures or do angiograms below the knee and vice versa with, you know, you know, interventional cardiologists and interventional radiologists. Um, there's just a big variability and asking the reps or if you have a contact that can ask a rep, you know, such as Kim, that is a great resource for you. So, um, and Kim knows, Kim knows everybody. So you, know, you can't go wrong there. You're giving away one of my secrets. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just one of what you said about the big variability in in within the within the within your subspecialty. What is the particular training, or is there an extra uh, you know um, courses or certificates that you do after your fellowship training that specializes in below the knee and in the feet? Um, you know, you know, you mean to get the training? You know, I mean, is it part of your fellowship? Or, you know, is it added on on the job afterwards? I mean, and what like, you know, like who's doing like in your in within vascular surgery, like where are the fellowships that are like more focused on, like, you know, what centers are focused more on below the knee stuff? Yeah, yeah, that's just a very valid question. And you're going to find different fellowship training programs that 
they they focus more on fixing aortic stuff and large aneurysms. And then you're going to find other fellowships where they focus more on doing more peripheral vascular disease with, you know, angiograms. And then you're going to find those programs that they're trained on how to do bypasses and they don't do very many angiograms. Um, in order to graduate a vascular surgery fellowship, you have to perform a set number of angiograms, a set number of open bypasses. Uh, so you, you get trained on them, but you're you're only going to be as good as a faculty that train you. So if the faculty that train you are, you know, they can put a stint in an artery higher up in the pelvis, or if they can, you know, do something in the upper thigh arteries, but they're not good down below, you're not going to be good down below when you get done with your training. And, you know, I don't want to go through all the different programs out there because there's, you know, multiple programs and um, it's, it's difficult to kind of pick that apart. And your best option is, you know, talking to guys like me or, um, you know, talking to reps, et cetera, et cetera, about that. Um, now, in terms of below the knee, below the knee is, you know, it's a very complex disease process and there's smaller arteries and you've got to find somebody that has a passion for peripheral artery disease. If your doctor comes in and talks to you, your vascular surgeon or whomever, and basically spends five minutes with you and says, yep, you got blockages down there. We're going to try and fix those, um, but we can definitely fix the ones up here. That's probably not the right guy. The right guy is going to say, well, these are tough, you know, we're going to try and open up this artery, but we got to make sure there's flow into the foot from that artery. You know, you can kind of get a good sense from your discussion with them if if they talk a little bit more in depth about the below knee arteries, and they're probably going to be a pretty decent interventionalist. Mm-hmm. But is there any, um, after your fellowship training, I mean, I don't want to necessarily include what centers are doing the best in lower yeah. leg or whatever, but after, after that, is there, are there any other courses or, you know, on the, you know, any kind of on the job stuff that you can participate in or you, you do participate yes. in? Yeah, what definitely. Would that be? What are those, are they like any kind of certificate stuff or, I mean, I don't know. No, there's, there's no extra certificate to get you know cli certified i mean there's there's different there's you can always get a certificate that says anything you want to make you look oh, good right. I, I, yeah 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 but <laughs> there's no dedicated great program out there that says okay you're going to spend an extra six months and all you're going to do is blow the knee angiograms and fix all this stuff you're going to pick all that up in your fellowship training um you got to choose your programs accordingly and now there's courses, you know, different things that um, they're put on by the societies and um, different people with different um, meetings that put on courses where you can practice getting pedal access and using different devices to treat different diseases and, you know, whether it be a cadaver or a pig. Um, there's there's definitely that option out there for the guys that need some help. Um, but I've, I've found a couple I've taught. I've taught some of them courses. I find them to be pretty rudimentary to kind of get guys springboard into it. But for the most part, you learn a lot of this with experience doing, you know, hundreds and thousands of these cases, like Dr. Simon said. Um, you, you've got to have that experience because it does matter because you learn that, well, I don't see any artery right there, but I see something clear down there. So his blood's getting there somehow. And I'll bet you that that artery would fill with contrast. It's just got the blood flowing in the reverse direction because because it needs to get blood back up to the calf muscle. So you go after that artery and all of a sudden you've got a nice artery that goes from the knee to the ankle because you gave it a shot knowing from your experience that there's a lumen, that there's something there to fix. So that's uh, unfortunately, you know, in the U.S., um, there's not a dedicated CLI program. We'll have just a few moments to wrap up and give some final pieces of advice to Dee as she is advocating for her mom for her life and limbs. So stay with us. 
Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. So we're wrapping up our show. It's been very insightful. We've had the uh, privilege of uh, uh, hearing from Dee, who's taking care of her mom who has critical limb ischemia, and Dr. Simon and Dr. Stout have, have kind of weighed in. You know, with the four minutes left, my two minutes of sense are when you're looking for a, a proceduralist to help your mom, there's a couple of questions that you want to ask, in my opinion. And one one of them is, do you do this procedure? Like, how how many do you do? I have patients ask me how many how many patients I treat with critical limb ischemia, and I I know the numbers. Um, you know, they ask me, what are the risks? And I sit down and kind of talk to them about the risks. Well, there could be a bleeding complication. There could be a, a multitude of things. And your mom's 90, so the risks do go up a little bit. But in general, the way I approach a patient who has critical limb ischemia, where they are staring down a, potentially a major amputation, and I might be able to help them, the likelihood of me killing your mom is very, very low. The likelihood of me having your mom go into renal failure from contrast is very, very low. The complication rate, I would say maybe two to 3% of a major complication. But the beauty of the procedure that we do from an endovascular approach is we can try, and even if we're not successful up that artery, we're probably not going to make her worse. And so I am very aggressive in patients, regardless of their age, if they're an appropriate candidate for for an intervention, but you've got to go into that initial visit with with your physician, whoever it's going to be, a surgeon, interventionalist. Ask some pointing questions. You know, what's your volume? What are your outcomes? I've never had a patient ask me, "Can I talk to another patient?" But I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of, of folks out there that dabble in the space, and then there are, I think, a little bit less that are actually truly CLI. Uh, kind of interventionalist, and you want to find somebody that that that's a true CLI interventionalist, right? Well, you know, what if it depends? Like, if they if would say, you know, the outcomes depend because you know people have, for example, varying you know um, degrees of comorbidities, you know, and it's going to be dependent on that. Or what is the yeah, you, you know, know it's, it's going to be very it's, variable. In my opinion, it's it's pretty standard. I mean, so you look for. We have to put a tube in at some point to get access into our arteries, so there could be a complication from there. But again, I'm, I quote patients a less than 3% risk of a major complication. Most of my patients go home the same day, so you can do it in an office, as we had talked about, or you can do it in the hospital. But um, there always is some risk involved. But again, you'll get a sense at, as to what that physician's comfort level is with the procedure the more you kind of discuss the process of the procedure itself. Um, and, you know, if they're not doing a lot of these, then you want to find a doctor that does a lot of them. Right. But it's we, a lot of times, I mean, it's kind of like putting on the spot too, like, you know, I mean, to ask somebody that, you know, and then also, you know, if they just say they do a lot of them, I mean, if you try to quantify it, I mean, it's going to be like, oh, well, you know, a lot, you know, it's going to have flip off answers, I, I, you know. I think, um, I think that you're going to find dropped out. If the physician gets upset that you're asking the question, walk out, number one. If the physician cut the hymns and haws about it, walk out. If the physician looks and goes, oh, uh, don't worry, we've done plenty of these. You know, you, you can get a good idea of being and trusting that, you know, that, that um, physician. 
Um, and there's going to be a risk with angiograms. I think in this case, I would be very hesitant to do a surgical bypass. Um, your risk of surgical bypass is going to carry a, a 7% to 10% chance of infection in the wounds just that you created surgically. And those are going to take three to five months to heal up on their own. So with her wound, I would be very careful on doing a bypass. Like that would be absolute last resort. Um, but do a diagnostic angiogram and then trying to fix, you know, relatively decent stenosis, if especially if your digit pressures are low or if you got some other perfusion analysis is saying that, you know, your 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 perfusion pressure, your, um, you know, DBI is less than 0.6, then I would definitely go for the angiogram. Yeah, right. Definitely. Yeah. Wasn't considering bypass at all. But um, but so if you do. So when you're doing a um, uh, the, the, like the risk. So basically what the risk would be for um, doing the procedure itself, you know what I mean? Like um, for bleeding or for um, stroke. You know, I mean, it's three to four percent. I mean, for each one of those categories, like hematomas, like perfusion, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for just the angiogram itself, I think that your risk is going to be three percent or less, especially if it's diagnostic and use CO2. I think that you're going to get out most of the time without any issues. If you need to go in there and angioplasty or even use an atherectomy device, um, your risk can go up a little bit, but I think you're still going to be at three or less. And those risks are mostly going to be bleeding from the groin, maybe a pseudoaneurysm. Most of those are remedied without surgery or any other major um, remedy. So you may take more time. You may be in a hospital for a day if you need to. Um, but I don't see any big issue with, you know, you know, you can't predict it, but I think that the risks are probably relatively small provided versus the benefit of the toe wound, especially if it gets worse, then your risk benefit ratio changes. Thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your perspectives. Dr. Stout, thank you so much, Dee, for your vulnerability and your courage and for your fight, you know, to advocating for your mom's life and her limbs. You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and Abbott. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. The Heart of Innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.